This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. The Coin World Marketplace is the safest way to buy and sell your coins and bullion. Order from the dealer of your choice and pay safely and securely using our escrow checkout. Visit coinworld.market to browse our inventory today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I am Jeff Stark. We've got another great episode for you today. Jeff and I are going to be discussing the coins and medals issued by the Mint recently to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower landing. Jeff's going to be sharing some interesting details about a couple of books in his library. And we interview Peter Symes, a world paper money expert. You know, speaking of the Mayflower, you know, we often associate that with Thanksgiving. And, you know, if I think of what I'm thankful for, I would say that I'm thankful for everyone listening to this show each and every week because you allow us to do this and talk about our favorite subject or one of our favorite subjects, coins, with you every week. We ask that, you know, just uh, show up every week, uh, listen, subscribe, share it with your friends, your enemies, your neighbors, your relatives. Uh, You can give everybody on your Christmas list the gift of the Coin World podcast and it costs you nothing. Absolutely. So recently, the U.S. Mint, in a joint program with the Royal Mint, put out a commemorative coins marking the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the Mayflower in what would become Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1620. Shout out to your home state. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I went to Plymouth Plantation when I was in the, I think I was in the third grade. My, my third grade class visited the museum and sort of the recreation of Plymouth Colony. So yeah, so it's an object of local interest for me. Sure. Um, the coin, sorry. I <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. So the Mint recently released a gold coin and silver medal to mark the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the Mayflower to what would become Massachusetts Bay Colony. And they ran this program in conjunction with the Royal Mint in England, which struck a 25-pound gold and 2-pound silver coin. And we want to talk about this for two reasons. The first is that we've actually interviewed the person responsible for the design of the U.S. $10 gold coin and silver medal and the reverse of the two British coins, the gold and the silver coin, which have a common reverse, which was designed by Chris Costello. Um, It was a really fun interview. We did talk to him about his design process and his work on these coins. So if you're interested, you should go back and listen to that episode. It It was a really fun interview. We were grateful for the opportunity to interview him and the coins they mark a major milestone in North American history. And we were lucky to be able to, to talk to him and to get some of his insights on the designs that he created. The second reason is that the sets almost immediately sold out of the Mint again. And a lot of collectors were frustrated by the bottleneck and the Mint's online ordering system. It's worth examining this episode in light of the recent issues encountered by Mint customers trying to buy the privy-marked bullion coins, which we've discussed in the last couple of weeks. The Mint's website had a very difficult time handling the amount of traffic for people who wanted to order the Mayflower 400th anniversary coins and medals. Customers of the Mint have encountered similar problems. So we have our colleague Paul Jilk's coverage down in the show notes, and it's worth examining this most recent release in the aftermath of the Mint's V75 Privy Mark Bullion coin release and Director Ryder's letter, which we've discussed recently on the show as well. The question is, you know, these issues 
seem to keep coming up at the mint and customers keep running into the same problems and and having to kind of deal with the same obstacles. So the question is, you know, will the mint change their ordering procedures? You know, are these coins going to be widely available on the market for people who want them? What are the resale prices going to look like? There are a lot of, of important questions to ask about these pieces. So there were a couple factors at play. And of course, uh, one of these was really not, I mean, in looking at Paul's coverage, three plus weeks ahead of the release, CoinWorld reported that the coins were going on sale at 9am, which it makes sense when you think about, hey, that there probably were customers in the United Kingdom who are trying to buy these sets. And the time there is five hours later, that's 1pm there, or 2pm there. So, you know, that makes sense. But it deviated from what collectors here in the U.S. are used to, but also three weeks earlier, the price for one of the products was announced. I think the silver medal was announced at $70. And then when it went on sale, it was actually $6 more. Now, that's a whopping 9% difference. I mean, it's not a, a huge amount, but it's certainly collectors already itching for a fight, if you will, based on their experience with the V75 release, to have that just pile on. And then the 9am release, which threw a lot of people off and threw me off, even though you know, CoinWorld had reported on it just because that's not the space in which I normally dwell. You know, I'm, I'm focused on the world stuff in the day-to-day role. So it was an instance of just another problem, another issue with the Mint. But hopefully going forward, you know, the Mint can iron things out. What do you think, Chris? The frustration is mounting. Coin Week had a headline that I thought articulated some of the frustrations pretty well, <laughs> which read, U.S. Mint Mayflower gold silver coin sales launch goes how you'd expect. Yeah. So I think that that articulates the low expectations that people now have for a lot of these releases in the sense that people adjust to things as as different realities shift. And so I think people have adjusted their expectations that they might not be able to get a new released coin that they might want for their collections. And they might have to go on to the secondary market and pick it up at what is going to be a fairly significant markup, ultimately. And again, I'm going to be interested to see if Ryder or whoever his successor ends up being. In fact, just as a side note, once the Biden administration is seated, I'll be curious to see if they keep Ryder on or if they decide to put someone else in. Whoever is ultimately in charge of the Mint, whoever the Mint director is, they and the sort of Mint staff, the sort of hierarchy in the Mint, they're going to have to figure out how to make these releases go more smoothly. Because people are getting more and more frustrated. And we talked on the show about the anger in response to the sellout and the website crashes surrounding the Privy Mark Bullion coin release. So they're going to have to change some things. Otherwise, I think people are going to stop buying new release products and the market might, it won't dry up entirely. I think there will always be people who are interested. And as long as dealers can flip the coins to make some money the dealers will want to pick them up um just because there's money to be made there uh, but actors who you know i've seen all like i say we've talked about this all sorts of buying groups who are looking for opportunities to make a quick buck so you know that has to be addressed that has to change and i've seen people in comments under articles whether about the 400th anniversary mayflower pieces or the V75 Privy Marks, I've seen people draw comparisons between the situation now and the situation in the late 1930s, where Congress actually stepped in because 
objects not of national importance were being commemorated. And there were all kinds of money-making schemes that people were developing surrounding the release of the coins. And this is not to say that the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II or the 400th anniversary of the landing of the Mayflower aren't worth commemorating. It's to suggest that it does seem like there are money-making schemes that have popped up. Now, I don't know that they're perfectly analogous. I think there are differences between how the way that people make money with the programs is in some ways different. But the fact remains that people, Mint customers were getting very frustrated then and Mint customers are getting very frustrated now. I'll be curious to see what policy or structural change ultimately comes about to try to ameliorate these issues. Now, having said that, you may be seated. For the transition here, I you know we just did a callback to an earlier episode, the interview with Chris Costello. This week in coin history, in numismatic history, is a callback to an even earlier episode of the Coin World podcast. And if you haven't listened to our previous episodes, please do so. Yes. On December 7th, 1953, Matt Rother wrote the editor of the Arkansas Gazette in Little Rock about his campaign to place In God We Trust on our paper money. Uh, Of course, we explored the motto In God We Trust and its evolution and appearance in uh, numismatic realms with the author of a book, Mr. Beerley, William Beerley, I believe, a uh, mm-hmm. book published by Whitman. We had that many weeks ago. Uh, so it was interesting that you know it was this week, 1953, that that gained steam. Also, as a precursor or prelude to something I'm going to talk about later, it was on December 11th, 1870, that Adolf A. Weinman, the designer of the U.S. half dollar and dime of famous renown, was born. So 1870, Weinman was born. We'll talk about Weinman in a bit. That's uh, what was happening this week in numismatic history. Oh, that's awesome. You know, we've been talking about CoinWorld's recent coverage of the release of different products, whether it's the V75 Perfume Mark Bullion coins or the coins and medals commemorating the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower landing. But we always look at an older issue of CoinWorld to see what the numismatic community was thinking about in years past. What year's issue did we decide to look at, Jeff? And why did we pick that issue? And what was happening on the cover? So we're looking back at 1998. That was chosen because our interview subject, Peter Symes, that was the year of publication for one of his three books on paper money. I believe the banknotes of Katanga. I could be wrong. But in any event, it relates to his publishing history. On the December 7th, 1998 cover, we have the story of the U.S. Mint displaying designs for the Sacagawea dollar coin. I, I mean, I can remember the... I don't want to say fervor because that's that may be overselling it, but you know I remember when that coin came out. I was in high school, no, I was in college at the time, and I was working my way through college at Walgreens, and the coin ended up, you know, that was two thousand, but you know ninety eight, I was still in college. That coin, it just seems, it seems like it's not been around that long but here we are we're talking about something that happened 22 years ago when the design process was underway because it was on the week of November 6th that the United States mint displayed 80 obverse and 41 reverse proposed designs for the new dollar coin they put them on display in a hall next to mint headquarters 
and lots of people got to come in and look at the designs and you know they wanted to gauge public reaction as we know the design chosen you know shows the native explorer woman with her baby on the obverse and the reverse has that beautiful soaring eagle to me it seems like just yesterday but in actuality it was a little bit ago <laughs> so what jumped out at you on the letters page chris so there were a couple of different letters that jumped out at me for different reasons. And the first I just thought was, it was actually a fairly powerful letter. And it's entitled, Thanks, Dad. And it reads, I'm a recent subscriber to CoinWorld, a gift from my dad. I really enjoy the letters to the editor, editorials, and David Bauer's column. I realize longtime collectors may already know much of the information, but I learned something, if not many things, from every issue. Due to a recent disability, I have been housebound. I was always interested in coins and was a collector of stamps as a young girl. My dad, like his dad before him, collected stamps. My dad took me to shows and taught me how to mount and catalog stamps before I was 10. Now, almost three decades later, I've become a dedicated coin collector or numismatist, and so is my dad. Although he still maintains his stamp collection, he now tells friends he is a coin collector. With his support, I have an extensive collection, and this hobby is getting me through a very difficult time. I have also rediscovered our relationship that started when I was a young girl. Until he bought me the subscription, I had never spent over an hour on the phone with him. This letter was written to thank CoinWorld and to thank my dad. By the way, both of my sisters are also collectors. It must be genetic. It's from Eileen Diminger of Redwood City, California. And this jumped out at me for several reasons. The first is that we've talked about giving subscriptions to numismatic publications, which CoinWorld would be a good one, to loved ones or to local libraries, and trying to share publications as a means of sharing the hobby. It's, you know, showing coins to people is a great way to introduce people to the hobby, but you can also give them publications where they can learn a little bit about different types of coins and build their kind of numismatic knowledge, which, you know, that knowledge can be almost as powerful as any individual coin or can be as useful, interesting, and powerful as any individual coin. The second is that I was kind of struck by... Ms. Deminger's comment that the hobby was helping get her through a difficult time. And, you know, not only is it wonderful that Coin World was part of that help and part of her interest and her passion, but it shows that this community can uplift people and that this hobby can uplift people. Not only can help them get through difficult times, but can introduce people to interests they never knew they had. And I think that that's a really powerful statement on the value of having a hobby. To the extent that Coin World is able to participate in enriching people's lives, that responsibility I take seriously and a perspective that I'm grateful to hear. So thanks, Miss Diminger from 1998. It was just interesting also to see how numismatics impacted her personal relationships. We talked with Brad Kareleff and Dave Norris about the value of building numismatic relationships. And I think I've even read a letter in the past that talked about how Coin World was, you know, read around a family dinner table. So it's interesting to see the way that numismatics and Coin World became a part of this family's relationship. So that letter touched me. And, and I thought it was not only a beautiful letter, but I thought that it was worth sharing here just to underscore a lot of the themes that we talk about on the podcast about community building and the value of numismatic knowledge. The other letter I thought was also sort of touching, and it's entitled A Day to Remember. And it reads, I recently attended a young numismatist program in Virginia with my son. The program was sponsored by Larry Gentili Sr. And we had the most wonderful time at the program. My son was so excited to learn about coin collecting and he received many wonderful prizes. It was also great to have the honor of having the president of the American Numismatic Association come and talk to the kids. It was a day to remember. Thanks, Larry. R. Pungulo from Great Falls, Virginia. This letter jumped out at me for similar reasons to the first, in the sense that it shows how important early numismatic experiences can be. You know, this father and his son 
I had a wonderful experience at this show. They attended a great educational program and the president of the ANA came down and talked to them and showed an interest in cultivating young numismatists. We talk all the time about how to spread the hobby and how to get more people interested. People in advanced positions in the hobby showing an interest in young collectors or inexperienced collectors, that can be really, really valuable. And I think this letter shows that a lot of people remember things like that. And I imagine, Jeff, you and I both have these moments, and we've discussed them on the podcast, of meeting people, you know, bold-faced hobby names or having some positive early experience, whether with a dealer, another collector, an officer in a club, whoever it is, people remember that kind of stuff. And those experiences live with people. And I appreciated the reader for writing that in. And I felt that that kind of echoed some themes that we've discussed on the show. So yeah, so there were two very touching letters on uh, on the letters page in uh, early December of 1998. Awesome. So, you know, earlier I made a reference to Adolf Weinman. And so- mm-hmm. It's interesting, as I organize my numismatic library, what I'm looking at this week is discovering that I have two copies of the same book. The book is The U.S. Mint and Coinage by Don Taxay. Now, Taxay is a colorful character, if you will, in the hobby for the fact that he just sort of disappeared off the face of Earth as far as you know public communication goes. He wrote a couple books in the 60s, and then just nobody really knows where he went. There's rumors that he went to some literally, you know, rumors that he went to the Himalayas and, you know, became a guru and this and that. So, I mean, you can find all sorts of speculation out there. But anyway, the book is a must have for your library. So that's why I mention it. But as I go through my library, I discover that I have two copies of this book. And it wasn't so much an accident. It was intentional. I knew I had had a copy that I bought Gosh, close to the time I started at CoinWorld almost 17 years ago, I bought it after seeing it referenced in the eSylum, a weekly email newsletter, and of course seeing it at work, and I wanted it for my library. And when I got it, I look inside and it has like a return address, not a label, but an inked portion that says Robert A. Weinman. Weinman died September of 2003, and he is the son of Adolf Weinman. The address inside the cover of this book is for Robert Weinman, the sculptor and designer who lived in rural New York. And I cross-checked this today when I was looking. Weinman lived in Briarcliff Manor, New York, and about five miles away was the P.O. Box address that's inside this book in Bedford, New York. So that's the 1966 version of the book that I have with a dust jacket. Now, when I travel around, I like to hit bookstores because I'm a a book snob and a a book fan. And, you know, I just, I love books. A a, a bibliophile? Yes, I am a bibliophile, certified bibliophile. And so (laughs) when I was at a store A year and a half ago, maybe a little more than a year ago, I found another copy of the U.S. Mint and Coinage. It was actually, it was more expensive than I thought it would be, but I got it because, you know, it's 25 bucks in tax, but I got it because of this clear plastic book plate, or maybe it's not plastic, but it's a clear book plate inside. And it says, Diane Wolf, United States Commissioner of Fine Arts, 1985 to 1990. Now, This was the reprint edition from 1983, 
and no dust jacket like the other one, but Diane Wolf was on the Commission of Fine Arts, which, as you may recall, is involved in selecting coin designs, among other things, and metal designs. She died unexpectedly in 2008, very well-known wealthy arts patron. How it ended up, I asked Beth Deicher, somebody who's been on the show before. Beth knew Diane well, and I asked her if Diane lived near where the bookstore was that I got this book, and she said no. And I said, well, is this possible if this was something that she did and gave away to people, you know, as a as sort of a, hey, you know, I'm I'm involved with coins and I'm I'm giving you this because you're helping me and whatever. And Beth says, no, I think that was her personal library copy. So, you know, I have two copies. One's the 1966 version. One's the 1983 version. They are the same contents, but they come from two famous people in the hobby. I can't very well get rid of one of them, can I? (laughs) Certainly not. So anyway, I thought when, you know, when we talked about, hey, it's my turn to talk about what we're reading for this week, that was something that was kind of fun and had a neat little story behind it. Oh, that's awesome. It's interesting how sort of the provenance of different, uh, whether it's a book or a coin, you know, provenance can impact its value and how you feel about it. You mentioned that, you know, you had these two books that had been owned by famous folks in the hobby and you didn't want to part with either one of them. So it kind of shows you that that power of provenance yeah. uh, has you keeping uh, keeping those two books. And that definitely happens with coins as well. So it, <laughs> oh, it, oh, it absolutely does. I would say it is nothing trivial to say the to describe the power of provenance. And I say that, I use that transition there because it is time for you to prove your metal, I should say, mm. prove your worth, your knowledge with the weekly trivia question. It's your turn, your time to answer it. It certainly is. And this one, I think I actually know. Okay. So last week, we were in Canada and we talked about the 1992 series of quarters that Canada Mm -hmm. put out for the nation's 125th anniversary. Yep. Uh, 125th anniversary of Confederation, 1867 to 1992. And they had nationwide design contests and all that. But that was not the only coin, circulating coin, they issued in 1992 to commemorate this massive event. So I asked you, what coin did they issue? And then as a sort of bonus round, I wanted to know what that coin shows. So can you answer either of those? I can answer, I think, both. The first answer is it was a $1 coin. Yes, it was. And I believe it showed the Canadian Parliament building. You are absolutely correct. Which was a callback, which, I mean, not a direct callback necessarily, but it was a sort of a visual callback to a dollar coin issued in 1939 that prominently featured the parliament building, right? You are absolutely correct. Boom. Boom. (laughs) My modern Canadian numismatic knowledge is slightly better than I thought it was, I guess. So on that note, I want to stick with a dollar coin because guess what? I mentioned the dollar coin in the news 22 years ago. Mm. If you were listening carefully, you might have noticed I didn't talk about the designer whose design was chosen. So you need to tell me for next week, and listeners out there, this is really for you. Chris is just my foil, my opponent. 
If anything, I'm the proxy for you, the audience. There you go. So we're going to have a proxy war. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, who is the designer of the famous Sacagawea dollar? I guess in a stamp term, they would say definitive, you know, because there have been other designs used in the Native American series. But, you know, we're talking about the one that is the capstone or the the foundation to the collection, which capstone and foundation are very different visually, but you know, you get the, (laughs) yeah, they are something that is, you know, intrinsic to, and and the base for the collection. So who was the designer? So for a wild card, I should ask how much she was paid for her design and how, Uh, so, And, and, and what form that payment took. Correct. So we'll have that next episode, but for now we have our interview with Peter Symes. We get to talk about paper money, all sorts of good stuff. Gentlemen, from Down Under in Australia. Here is the interview. Jeff and I are very lucky today to be joined by Peter Symes, a world paper money expert, researcher, and educator. His work has appeared in the International Banknote Society Journal, Banknote Reporter, and elsewhere. He is the co-author of Banknotes of Yemen and author of The Banknotes of Katanga and Kirkwood and Sons Copper Plate Engravers. He has served as the president of the IBNS and edited its journal. Thank you so much for being with us today, Peter. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I was stunned by the range of topics you've covered, the list of your articles on your website. You've written on notes issued by places like the Antarctic Exploration Groups to Biafra, just a huge a huge range. What draws you to the topics that you write on? There have been various reasons why I've tackled topics. I guess in the main, though, that's been due to my collecting interests. So for instance, my first major collecting interest was Scotland. So I wrote some material on that. Not a lot, though. But when I started collecting banknotes from the Arabian Peninsula and later in Bangladesh, Pakistan and various other places, I found there was a great dearth of information easily available. And a lot of the information was inaccurate as well, as I discovered. And so it was my aim to educate myself about the topics I was studying. And so that's what led to my research and my writing articles. You plumb the topics that you write on at incredible depth. How do you find information on such obscure topics? Sometimes with great difficulty, sometimes with incredible ease. A lot of my sources start off with publications by the issuing authorities, be they central banks, currency commissions, currency boards, and that's generally a starting point. In some instances, there's been some good research done prior to that, and you can access that. In other instances, you really have to struggle to find the information, and sometimes you constantly come up against dead ends. And sometimes uh, there's a little bit of serendipity and you stumble across something which all of a sudden opens doors. But there's other aspects. You can make contact with other collectors. You spoke before about one of my publications, The Banknotes of Yemen. I contacted many years ago two fellow members of the International Banknote Society who both had an interest in the subject. And together over a period of two years, we did a lot of research, a lot of work on the ground in Yemen. And we managed to come up with a book. So it's good to have other people sharing your interests. And certainly over the years, I've had collaboration with people to help me achieve the articles that I write. Can you discuss for us, please, 
how you got started in this, how long ago this was, you know, and, and sort of where those journeys have taken you. I mean, you're a name I've, I've been at CoinWorld almost 17 years, and I certainly know I've heard your name way back at the beginning, but I don't have any inkling as to know when you got started and how you got started and all that. Okay. Well, I started by collecting uh, banknotes after a visit to Scotland in 1976. And I had no idea when I first went to Scotland that Scotland issued their own banknotes. Each of the commercial banks issues their own banknotes. I had always thought that Bank of England banknotes circulated throughout Great Britain. So I was quite surprised at this. And I was working at a hotel for about six months. And during that time, I souvenired one pound notes. I, I think I came back with five one pound notes and they were just souvenirs. Well, a few years later, I went back to Scotland and I came back with a few more souvenirs and then I started collecting. And that's when I started my interest. Although the writing came later, I was probably stimulated to a great degree by my joining the International Banknote Society and not so much the publications at that time, but I was introduced to other collectors at the Sydney chapter meetings of the International Banknote Society, and a lot of people there with a lot of knowledge, and that's when I first started thinking about doing presentations rather than writing. So we were encouraged to do presentations amongst the group, and so that usually required a 15-minute, 30-minute talk, and so you needed to get some background. But one of my first articles, or the first serious article, that I did was on the banknotes of Biafra. And one of the reasons I did this article is because when you read a lot of numismatic publications, you find that the items that are rare, uh, expensive, unusual, get written about. And if you're a collector as I was back in the 1980s, you don't have a lot of money to spend on thousands tens of thousands of dollars of a rare item, you're interested in the cheaper items. And in many instances, the amount of information available for these cheap items was just not available. And so my aim about writing the, about the banknotes of Biafra was to highlight what were then very cheap banknotes. These were selling for in Australia from 50 cents to say $2.00. Um, yeah. I found many them, of them are still very cheap. Yes, yes. I don't think any of them got expensive. Um, but what do people know about them? And then what I found as I started digging was that a lot of the information, or I shouldn't say a lot, some of the information was just wrong, dates of issue and the such like. And it was also my first experience of dealing with an overseas institution. I ended up contacting a museum in Nigeria and asking questions, four or five questions I wanted answered. I got the reply 12 months later. And it's always, it was a good introduction because as I found out later, sometimes when you write to an institution, you get a pretty much an instant response. Sometimes you get a delayed response and sometimes you get nothing at all. But yeah, that was my first introduction to researching and writing about a series of banknotes. And from then, I just went on and started following my interests. Well, that sounds like the path a number of people probably take into either coin collecting or banknote collecting. We recently interviewed Charles Morgan, who wrote The 100 Greatest Modern World Coins. It was published this year. And he shared with us that he had found writing about coins from a number of different countries difficult since he didn't always understand 
or have a sort of thorough understanding of the cultures that produced the coinage that he was writing about. And he found that sometimes he didn't understand the cultural implications of the coins or what they might have meant to the societies that they were struck for. And so there's an element of cultural interpretation to the work that you do. Sometimes when writing about other cultures, things can get lost in that process, or, or it's sometimes hard to understand certain elements that might be unfamiliar to someone who didn't come up or grow up in that culture. Do you face a similar challenge since your work covers so many different countries and historical episodes? Yes, it's an ongoing frustration, but it's also a great delight when you stumble across information which you had not imagined. In many instances, I have developed contacts in various countries on which I'm doing research, and these contacts often throw information to me, or they can explain things which to them are very simple, but to me, a foreigner, both of the country and of the language, I'm just totally unaware of them. I'll give you two examples. A lot of the work that I've done is on Arabic banknotes or banknotes issued by Arabic-speaking countries. And one of the frustrations we found when I were doing the work on the banknotes of Yemen was the serial number prefixes on the banknotes were not in alphabetical sequence. There was, it was just didn't make sense. And we threw this question to one of the authors, Keith Street, who was at that stage working in Yemen. And the basic question to the, his fellow workers who were Yemenis was, is there a second sequence to the alphabet? And lo and behold, there was. Uh, it's called the Abjad sequence. And each letter of the Arabic alphabet has a numerical value. And if you arrange these, the letters of the alphabet in Arabic value, uh, in numeric value, they come up with a completely different sequence. And to any Arabic speaking person brought up in their society, this is just common knowledge. But to a non-Arabic speaking, it's not common knowledge. So all of a sudden, the light goes on and, and the serial number sequences of nearly every country that issues banknotes with Arabic sequences becomes obvious. Another one which was perhaps even more obscure was I was doing some work on the banknotes of Azerbaijan. And they had two dates, which is quite common for Arabic speaking countries, they have a, the Gregorian date and they have the Hijira date. But on the banknotes of Azerbaijan, there was another date which didn't make sense. And after a lot of research, I was put onto the solution by another member of the International Banknote Society. There is actually a solar calendar used by the Arabs, uh, which was introduced when they had to uh, start. Well, it was introduced by the Ottomans. It was an Ottoman calendar. And I'm having trouble trying to remember what the name of the calendar is. But all of a sudden, when I was made aware of this different sequence of years, solar-based as opposed to the Hijira lunar-based, it was just another light bulb going off. And so it's these sorts of aspects which you can struggle. And if I hadn't learnt this, I probably would have written something in my article to say that it's assumed to be Hijira, but it doesn't actually fit the sequence. And to find all of a sudden something which does make sense and which educates you. They're the joyous moments when you just learn something new about another culture. And uh, it, it's nice to add that to your research and to your, the work that you undertake. Love those stories. I know for me, there's been times where, you know, you look, you know, I, I say all over in quotation marks, but you know, you look at seemingly every source 
to try to find some explanation. I think this is what's in this scene, but nobody ever actually goes out and says that. And I don't want to be wrong, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to further any sort of myths that already exist out there. So that's great. Having a um, local source, a, a native source, seems very important. How important has the IBNS been, not only to your research, but the understanding of world paper money designs and history and meaning in the last, you know, 30 years? How has that brought all of these things to the fore? Well, I have to say it's been invaluable. I don't think I could have done a lot of my work without the International Banknet Society. First of all, just finding people with common interests has been a great asset. Finding, communicating with members in other countries has been excellent. It's also been enhanced by the modern technology. Some of the work I've done on Bangladesh and Pakistan could probably not have been done unless we had the internet. It may have been done, but trying to identify people to deal with has been difficult. Now, a lot of these countries that it would be difficult to make contact with, we now have members in the International Banknote Society. And we have some members who have an incredibly broad knowledge on some of these aspects. We have a a forum on the IBNS website, which members are allowed access to. And sometimes I am just amazed at the questions a collector will ask and somebody will come back with details that obviously, well, not sometimes the details are due to them being a local and in the country and knowing what the answers are. And sometimes the details are because they have just done an incredible amount of research themselves. So while you as a researcher may not know much about a subject, there's every chance that there's somebody in the International Bank Nurses Society who knows a lot about that subject. There's a page on the IBNS website from 2012 that describes you as a beacon of light for newcomers. I already know part of the answer to this question, but for the benefit of our listeners, what work do you do to engage new collectors and researchers? Uh, well, that's a difficult question to answer. I'm not quite sure that I can give a very good answer to that. I, I guess I'd like to make the International Bank Society, and I did during my years of presidency and working on the IBNS board, try to make it more reliable. We had problems, for instance, at one stage with the regularity of our IBNS journal of providing benefits to our members. So making those available the newsletter, and which later was absorbed into the IBNS journal, making those available keeps people interested. Unfortunately, you can never be everything to all people. Um, like many societies, we have a problem where sometimes people join for one or two years and they don't get what they're looking for and they drop their membership. On the other hand, you have people who join for one year and all of a sudden want to become a life member uh, because we do provide exactly what they're looking for. Another thing we do, we have a set up a, a register with people of a certain interest so that if you are studying a country, let's say Sudan, and you want to know more about it, there are people who have nominated that they're willing to share information about Sudan. And so new collectors can access that information if they wish. So you've already touched on this a little bit in your previous answer, but what institutional support do you think hobby organizations could and or should be providing to aspiring numismatists or notophilists, people who want to study paper money? 
it's a difficult question for any institution. It comes a little bit back to what exactly are new collectors looking for. One of the commonest questions that came up in my time with the International Banknote Society is that everybody's looking for a source of new issues. And so if it's not practical, but if you could organize access to new issues and to actually providing banknotes, that would help. But what you end up with the institution is crossing that bounds from, a, if you like, an academic institution into a commercial institution. That's one thing that I think a lot of collectors see. I've seen the request many times over the years. Can't the IBNS make arrangements with central banks to supply banknotes? And no, it's impractical. But that's one of the things that people ask for a lot. One of the things I think would be useful is a library of, and in these days I'm talking about a virtual library with PDF files and the such, where people who want to do research can access the information that's been published. As an example, I've did some research on Libya, the currency commission that was in Libya. They only issued three reports, but I could not find all three reports in one institution. So I ended up, over a period of some time, finally locating the three reports at three different libraries. Bank of England Library, Federal Reserve Library was were two of them. And so I have those available as scanned documents in PDF. And if somebody was interested in doing research on that area, to have that sort of information available so they can do research would be very useful because, as I said, it took me many months to assemble them. I've done the same thing with the reports of the Iraq Currency Board. So it'd be nice to think that when people have done some research, that they get their original sources and can make them available for other people to do it. Having said that, a library is always an interesting problem because so much of the information, in, especially in numismatics, is out of date very, very quickly. And so to assemble a library and then have it available to people, only to have it superseded within a couple of years, uh, is problematic. But information, I think, is what people want. Certainly when we were, have done some surveys for the International Banknote Society, the thing most collectors ask for is information. Hmm. You mentioned in your answer just there the importance of currency boards. I wonder, have you found information from currency boards to be more helpful than information provided by, say, central banks? And does the IBNS interface with central banks around the world to provide information to collectors? Getting back to the first part of that, the currency boards seem to provide a lot more information simply because the provision of currency is their sole objective. And so information they provide on, on currency always seems to be more useful than central banks. Central banks, of course, control their local economies. So you get a whole lot of data in their annual reports about imports, exports, gross domestic product, and other things which are largely uninteresting for a banknote collector. Having said that, you can find information about the banknotes, but it varies from central bank to central bank. Sometimes there'll be nothing in there. Sometimes they'll have the amount of money in circulation. Some central banks will report a change in signature. Most won't. Central bank reports I find a little difficult. They're also difficult to access because they're usually a much larger volume running into hundreds of pages where a report from the currency commissions and currency board is a small volume and easily photocopied by a, a library and, and sent to you. 
I think I've missed the second part of the question. I was just wondering if the IBNS interfaces ah. with central banks around the world and if, if there's any sort of contact and information sharing between the IBNS and those institutions. No, pretty much the only information that's extracted from central banks is done by collectors who approach them. So some central banks are quite open to providing a level of information to collectors, but the International Banknote Society itself doesn't facilitate those connections. So one of the things that strikes me, maybe this is um, elementary, we've been deep in PhD stuff here for a few minutes, but my question is more elementary or observation, I guess. Paper money, and I, I have some right here in front of me, a beautiful note from Japan, and I've got a, a bunch of different notes that I've picked up in my time. Paper money seems so appealing visually because of its size in modern times, certainly more color. Obviously, there's been color around for more than 100 years and, you know, one or two colors and all that. But even this modern stuff has full color and there's security windows and metallic threads. There's all these cool elements on them that really can give you things to look at and really study. And yet they seem to be at least in the U.S., the redheaded stepchild compared to coins. You know, everybody starts with quote-unquote coins. They hear, you know, here it's the Lincoln cent. Uh, I know I follow a uh, collector group in Australia that's on Facebook, and they're all talking about the new coins that the Royal Australian Mint's putting out, you know, whether that was the A to Z circulating coins, and, you know, some of those were really neat designs and crazy stuff. But it seems like paper money could shine and it just yet hasn't had its moment yet. Why is that? And how do we sort of bring it to the fore? I think the main reason is cost. If you're a young adult, a teenager, if you have an interest in collecting anything, postage stamps and coins seem to be common collecting interests, or they certainly have been over a number of years. And you can pick up coins out of circulation. You can pick up coins for very little money. I mean, obviously, there's some expensive coins, but you can start and assemble a pretty good collection with not a lot of money. Now, most banknotes have a high face value, particularly in the Western world. And so for somebody starting out as a collector, yes, you might pick up some $1, $2, $5, $10 notes. But when you start getting up into the $20, $100 and so on, it starts to get a little prohibitive. So we find that most collectors of banknotes come into the hobby at a mature age, often from collecting postage stamps, often from collecting coins. But you need enough money to be able to buy something at face value. That's not to say that every banknote you collect, you pay face value because a lot of them have been demonetized. But I think that's the the big stumbling block to get people that are prepared to outlay enough money to cover the face value. If you just think of the series of modern day banknotes in the United States of America, I don't know what the total face value is for that, but it's not something that um, everybody can do. And then you start looking for signature varieties, you look for date varieties, you look for various other varieties, and it, and it starts to become a serious collecting interest. You can try and get around this problem by looking at other countries. And I have at various stages in my life had less money than enough. And I've gone off onto countries which are inexpensive to collect. And I just quickly say things like 
Bangladesh, Pakistan, Guinea-Bissau. These are countries which many people have probably not given a second thought to, probably hardly ever come up on the nightly news. And so where do people learn about these things? But their banknotes are of incredible interest mm-hmm. and they can be very cheap. So I think if, if we want to get more people interested in banknotes, you have to get them interested in world banknotes and have a look at that. It certainly has opened up uh, horizons for me, which I'd never considered. It's taught me things which I've never considered, all because you start asking questions about what's on the banknotes, you know, whose portrait appears there, what language they're using. And some people are interested in that. And of course, some people aren't. Some people exclusively collect the banknotes of their own country. I myself have never collected Australian banknotes, but I have collected banknotes of many countries. So the nub of the answer to your question is is just cost, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, that makes sense because most banknotes, the lowest denomination banknote is on par with or slightly above the highest denomination of circulating coin. It's not always yeah. the case, but you know, like Switzerland today, you have a five franc coin that's worth $5.50 US. They've got a 10 franc note. That's the smallest note. That's 11 bucks. Now, you know, the US, you mentioned one note of each, that would be $188 for somebody today from a hundred down to a one, including the $2 note. So that is a lot to sink into it. But this focusing outside of a home country, in many cases, like you say, is is the perfect remedy to that issue because, you know, there's all sorts of, as you pointed out, really neat, affordable notes, polymer notes now too. I mean, gosh, there's, you can get several different polymer notes from Africa for a dollar or less US, a couple dollars Australian. So speaking of polymers, is that sort of the, the wave of the future? Is that, I mean, I say that and polymers have been around since 1988 in Australia, but is that still something after the, the 45th or the 50th country has issued a certain type of something, it's not news anymore. But is there still keen interest for that? Is that uh, a way to excite people because, ooh, the money's plastic? What about that? Well, I think perhaps the excitement bit has passed, but certainly innovations like that do keep people interested. One of my collecting interests at one stage was security features on World Bank notes. And I was fascinated by the different security features which were being introduced. And the development of security features is just quite stunning. I sort of dropped the interest a while ago when it went off on another tangent. But certainly changes in currency, such as going to polymer, do attract a new level of interest. And over the last 20, 30 years, when polymer and banknotes started to become more prolific, there were many, many, many collectors who just went out to collect polymer banknotes. And as you say, there are now so many countries issuing them that it's become almost uh, impossible for anyone to keep on top of that. But innovations in currency do tend to stimulate interest. There's no doubt about that. But the other thing which I find interesting about banknote collecting is the huge range of items that are collectible and topics that are collectible. We once had an International Banknote Society meeting in South Australia and there were about 60 people attending. And at the start of the meeting, we're in a hall and we're all asked to stand up and say what our collecting interests are. I believe in that in about 60 people, only two people collected the same thing. You've got obviously the different countries. You've got things like polymer banknotes. You've got a lot of thematic topics. For instance, one of the strongest collecting topics in the whole world is banknotes with portraits of Queen Elizabeth on it. 
You've got people, I know somebody who collects banknotes with bridges on it, banknotes with insects on it. There's just such a range of topics. And I think that's the other nice thing is you get people, for instance, I knew somebody who was uh, a musician and they collected banknotes that had musical instruments on it. The beautiful thing about these is that they're not usually documented. You won't go out and find, uh, probably won't find an article or a book on banknotes with insects on it. So the joy becomes the hunt. You are out there doing fresh work, hunting down banknotes that have got insects on it. And while most of us are not interested in the topic, those who are find it a great joy to go through all the world banknotes they can, just hunting for insects. And what, what happens, of course, in something like the International Banknote Society, especially in the smaller chapters, this person gets known to be somebody who collects insects and then other people help them. Did you know about this banknote? Did you know about that one? And so that helps. There's a sort of collaboration in trying to help this person continue their interest. It seems like the collaboration among collectors might be similar to the collaboration among researchers. You mentioned how important it's been for your work to cultivate sources on the ground, but I imagine that cultivating a network among other collectors can also be very important, not just for research, but for assembling a collection. What would be your advice to people looking to cultivate a network of other collectors and a network of sources on the ground in places that they're interested in researching? My experience has been varied. Certainly, the International Banknote Society has put me in contact with many people over the years who have either assisted me directly or indirectly. And sometimes it's just offering a small piece of advice, such as the piece I mentioned earlier about the solar calendar used by the Ottomans. Sometimes it's been a piece of useful information, and sometimes it's just a comment. Mixing with collectors, you'd be surprised. Something that you haven't noticed about something. I was mentioning before about my interest in Biafra. Before I wrote the article, completed it, I gave a little presentation to the Sydney chapter of the International Banknote Society about the Biafra banknotes. And one of the members there said, well, of course, they've got the palm tree there that used to be on the banknotes of British West Africa. And I'd never seen any of these banknotes. And all of a sudden, ah, oh, a useful tidbit of information that came out of a knowledgeable person within the chapter meeting that I was attending. And that's the sort of help you get, just discussing things. I've had other people writing comments about articles that have been published in the International Banknote Society Journal, and they've sent clarification on things, or, or they've questioned things that I've written. So that's good. It's always nice to get that before you publish, but Getting at any stage is useful. People on the ground is in establishing those networks is, is very, very difficult. It's not something that comes easily. I've done things such as contacting people in the country that are members of the IBNS. I've sometimes got names and addresses from the internet from just comments on forums or maybe articles that people have published and contacting the author and asking them whether they can answer some questions for me. I don't think for contacting people on the ground, there's any simple answer, but it's easier now than it used to be, simply because there are many more people in, in countries all over the world who are voicing themselves on the internet. So it's fair to say that there's an element of serendipity in the research process. There is. So your work, as I mentioned at the top, covers an absolutely astounding array of topics. But I wonder, are there any topics that you yourself are interested in pursuing in the future? Or are there any areas where you feel the research is underdeveloped and you think that there might be rich earth to till for researchers at some point in the future? 
Absolutely. There's lots more research to do. There's some of the smaller countries, there's a lot more information to be found. There are certainly some areas where there have been a notable research done by specific people. You pick something like Vietnam. You would think that, well, who would know anything about Vietnam? But there's a, an IBNS member called Howard Daniel III, and he's done amazing work in there. But if the master you, sergeant. I'm sorry, Jeff? Sorry, the master sergeant. Yes, yes. <laughs> His level of research into, into Vietnam, if that was copied across a whole lot of other countries in Asia and Africa, there's just so much that could be done. I can remember somebody giving a presentation at an IBNS meeting on Sierra Leone. And he had a whole lot of modern Sierra Leone notes there. And he held up some of them or passed them around the audience. And there were five notes of one issue. Every one of them had a different serial number font. And he said, in the catalogs on Sierra Leone, none of these are documented. Now, there is a whole range of information out there that can be accessed by somebody who can get on the ground, get access to these notes and find the information. A lot of the trouble in some of these African countries, for instance, is just the only thing we know about these banknotes is what comes out on the collector market. And typically, dealers will go into African countries, buy a whole lot of notes from the central bank or from some source, and then put them onto the retail market. Now, when I was doing my research into uh, Somalia, I discovered that there was a date that was missing or a signature variety. I can't remember exactly, but there was one that was missing. And a friend of mine who was, had been to Kenya where Somali notes circulate in northern Kenya, they're certainly available from exchange dealers. He came out with some notes which had a, a date and a signature. I think it was a date and a signature that was just not recorded anywhere. So at the moment, everything we know about Somalia or all up to the time that I started doing the research, was what was written in the catalogues, and that was based on what people had taken out of the country. Often, there, there are other issues which were just not well known. I'll give you another quick example, is that in Pakistan, when I was doing some research, there was a, a banknote that was in and out of the catalogue, the omnibus standard catalogue of world paper money. It was in one edition, out the next, in the one. I discovered that this note existed, although there was a great deal of scepticism from people I spoke to that it actually existed. It had been reported by a Pakistani collector. But as it turns out, there's, it's a one rupee note which had that introduced this one rupee note and it had four languages in the different local languages such as Baluchi along the bottom of the note. But Pakistan had just announced that Urdu was to be the national language for all Pakistanis and the concept of proliferating local languages was frowned upon. So the note was withdrawn from circulation. Now, it's quite possible that some of these notes in some Asian and African countries also exist. Very short issues. That's where I think there's a wealth of knowledge to be mined for anybody who's interested in going down that path. But it requires access to people, to governments. And quite often, governments and financial institutions, issuers, can't understand why anybody's interested in their banknotes. I've had this reaction of, you know, why are you interested in this? It's, it's just paper money. And they just don't understand that it's a collecting interest for many, many people in the world. But the opportunities are certainly there.
Right. So some people might not see something they handle every day as being an object of interest, but it might be tremendously interesting for someone from a different culture or on the other side of the world. Absolutely. I'm curious, do you travel to conduct research or collect notes? And if so, what advice would you offer somebody to make their own research or collecting trip as fruitful as possible? In the first instance, yes, I have traveled, mostly for research, particularly when I was doing works associated with currency boards. And most of the currency boards, the whole concept of currency boards was pretty much a result of the Bank of England. So where the British had their influence throughout Arabia, Africa, various places, they set up the currency boards. And so a lot of the information is available in English or British records held at the National Archives at Kew in London. And yes, I have visited and got the information from there. A lot of people like to travel overseas to get money from central banks. You know, I see this comment often on forums or such like. Someone will say, well, I'm visiting country X. Can anybody identify a source to get banknotes? If you're thinking of traveling to a country to get banknotes, do your research very carefully because most central banks around the world will not provide banknotes to collectors. Some central banks have offices maybe in one city where they will provide banknotes, but mostly it doesn't happen. And many is the complaint I've heard about central banks not supplying uncirculated banknotes to collectors. So if you're expecting to go to a country to find the banknotes, make sure that the central bank you're going to will supply them. Other than that, you have to rely on dealers or other collectors in that country. And again, through something like the International Banknote Society, you can usually, well, not usually, but commonly track down collectors and dealers who work in that area who may be able to supply the notes to you. But it's not something I would... I've had some unsuccessful attempts to go to countries and obtain banknotes. I think the people who are professional dealers who go to these countries, they commonly get them from, say, foreign exchange dealers in countries because the foreign exchange dealers get the notes from the central bank and then provide them again. Uh, but traveling to the countries themselves is not just, of course, about the banknotes. It's about the whole background. I mean, if you see Jeff was talking earlier about pictures on banknotes and what they mean, I've been on trips where I've objective of going to the country is to take my camera along and take photographs of all these pictures that appear on the banknotes. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned the the commercial aspect because I've been fortunate now at CoinWorld for almost 17 years. I've gone to, I don't know, 12 or 13 world money fairs in Berlin. And every year there's just piles of banknotes from everywhere, from Bermuda, Bahamas, Bahrain, Qatar, all over. I mean, there's just, it is such a neat thing to see piles of fresh banknotes that these dealers are bringing in from all over. Some of them, I'm sure you know the names if I said some of the names, you know, Henry from Japan or Gabrielle from the US or all these, and they're just an enormous variety. And it excites me because then I go through there and, ooh, what's a topic I can write about? What, you know, what's new? What do we not know about? What's, what's interesting here? And I think 
That is probably the best way to describe world paper money is there's so much to explore, just like traveling, hopping on a plane and going somewhere to be able to really soak up the local culture and learn so much. We thank you for the work that you do toward educating folks and and spreading that mission. And and part of that, of course, is uh, doing this here today. Thank you for having me on your show. That was our interview with Peter Symes, a noted banknote researcher and historian. And uh, we hope that was beneficial and enjoyable to you. And of course, we hope that every week we're doing something that's fun and enjoyable and entertaining. If you feel that we are doing those things, please keep on listening every week and remember to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcast. It is the best way for you to support the show. But until then, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World Podcast was brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. All the safety, trust, and convenience you'd expect from CoinWorld. With over 40,000 coins available, visit coinworld.market to explore our inventory today.